become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 27 of Macabre Misfortunes. What's up guys? So Tracy, today's episode is a little different in the fact that we have an interview after the story which pertains to the story that we're covering. Awesome. Now this interview presented itself first and then once I heard the backstory from the interview, I thought, you know what, this actually would be a perfect story to use on Macabre Misfortunes. Mm-hmm. Because it really doesn't fit anywhere else. But we've kind of covered stories like this before on Macabre's Fortune. So I thought, there we go. Now, obviously, we don't normally have interviews on uh, these episodes. But since the story fits and we had to interview, I thought this was just the best place for it. Today, we're going to tell you the story of the Cleveland Strangler, Anthony Sowell. Trace, I'm not going to go really deep into a story, but I'm going to tell you plenty, and you're going to see how horrible of a person he is. Oh, man. Yeah, it's not good. There's a great documentary on him uh, called Unseen. It came out in 2016 by FilmRise. It's available on YouTube and a bunch of other streaming services, but it goes into some major details of who he was and victims. All right. Anthony Sowell was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. He was born August 19, 1959. In January of 1978, he joined the United States Marines. Thank you for your service. He doesn't get thank yous. Oh, okay. Take back, take back. (laughs) During his time in the military, he trained as an electrician. Now, he spent most of his time in North Carolina, He spent one year overseas in Japan while he was in the Marines. You know, the the thing of it is, too, he spent seven years, okay? He got out in 1985, but he actually received a uh, couple of medals Mm -hmm. and a couple of of, uh, other awards that were basically for his, his... you know, being a really good Marine mm-hmm. and and just being good service all the way around. Look what so happened. I, I don't know what happened after that point, but after he got out, that's when the bad stuff started to happen. Like I said, he got out in 85. Now, mm-hmm. four years later, in 1989, there was a woman who was three months pregnant. She attempted to leave Sowell's home. To keep her from leaving, he bound her hands and her feet with a tie and a belt, a necktie. Then he gagged her with a rag. She would go on to tell police that he choked her so hard that her body started tingling and she thought she was going to die. Sowell was charged with kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape. How do you have rape and attempted rape? I'm not sure. I mean, I guess maybe he raped her one time and another time he tried to but didn't succeed, so there was two separate charges. I don't know. 
Because if it had been actual rape, it would have been two counts of rape. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I, I don't know either. Anyway, he pled guilty to rape, and he spent 15 years in jail. Okay, so she was pregnant with his child. I don't know that. Oh, you don't know I that? I don't know that. Okay. He spent 15 years in jail, and he was released in 2005. He was able to get a job at a factory. He was released from that job in 2007, and then he started collecting unemployment benefits. Now, according to neighbors, he made his living selling scrap metal. Okay. But neighbors had other concerns. Like, for example, the foul odor that was coming from his property. So much so that they complained to the health department. During the midst of all this, Sowell had joined an online dating service, and his profile stated that he was a master looking for a submissive person to train. One of the girls that answered his ad, and he was dating, was a uh, young lady by the name of Lloyd Frazier. She was the niece of then Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson. No kidding. She started dating him shortly after he was released from prison. She actually moved in with him and said that she smelled decaying bodies, but was told that the smell was actually coming from his stepmother. Not a dead stepmother. She just apparently just... Just smells? Bad hygiene. Oh, gosh. That's rude. When Frazier moved out, she said that the smell was actually coming from Ray's sausage shop that was right next door to Sola's house. And, And this isn't funny, but... The sausage shop thought that they were having major sewage problems or something because of the smell when it was actually coming from Sowell's house. But they thought it might have been their problem. And, and that guy spent over $20,000 on new plumbing only to find out it wouldn't him. But anyway, so Frazier stopped living at that house in 2008. In September of 2009, Sowell had a date with Latundra Billings. He invited her back to his place for a drink. On September 22nd, she told police that after a few drinks, he began getting angry and he started hitting her. He choked her and then he raped her as she passed out. On October 29th, police arrived at his house with an arrest warrant. He wasn't home at the time, but they did find him and arrest him two days later. The police had determined that something was not right when they actually made their initial visit to his house, and they requested a search warrant to investigate the property. The bodies of two women were found in a shallow grave in the basement of the house. Four other women were found on the third floor and in the crawl spaces. My Lord. After digging in the backyard, three more complete bodies were found, as well as the partial remains of a fourth body. The body count would reach 11 when a human skull was found in a bucket inside the house. Most of the victims were killed by manual strangulation, and others were gagged or had uh, ligatures on their body. Ligatures, like uh, Uh, something you used to strangle with, like a rope or Mm -hmm. extension cord or something. He also had raped three other women, by inviting them back to his house to smoke crack with him. 
At the time of his arrest, Sowell was 50 years old and had been living at the house for four years. He was held on a $5 million bond. His trial was supposed to start June 2, 2010, but it was repeatedly delayed by attorneys requesting appeals and what have you. He was charged with 11 accounts of aggravated murder and 74 counts of rape, kidnapping, and tampering with evidence, and, of course, the ever-popular abuse of a corpse. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity initially, but later he changed that to just not guilty. July 22nd of 2011, he was convicted of all but two accounts. Jurors recommended the death penalty, and on August 12th, the judge agreed with the jury. September 14, 2011, Sowell was placed on death row in a Chillicothe Correctional Institute in Ohio. His execution was set for October 29, 2012. So this goes to show you how the legal system works. This was 2011, September, and just a little over a year later is when the execution was set. Mm -hmm. But, like usual, the stay of execution was filed, and legal battles went on for years, and in fact... Sowell actually died in prison from a terminal illness February 8th, 2021. Awesome. But, it, I'm, but I'm saying that's 10 years that's later right, almost. Right. And they, after they were get the death penalty was supposed to happen, 10 years later, he still wouldn't execute. I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised that they had set a date that quick, even though it was just a year. You know what I'm saying? Because most of them, don't most of them take forever to decide that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's 20 years. Or, I mean, it doesn't take forever to, to give them the death penalty. To decide just, to give them, uh, yeah. It just takes forever with all the pleas and mm -hmm. the requests. I mean, he had requested new trials. He had requested a bunch of new stuff saying this wasn't considered this evidence. When there was Every time you turn around, there was something new thrown in there. So, But the reality of it is he died in, um, like I said, February of last year. Good. I'm going to give you some facts, you know, how we do like the little facts that have to do right. with it. And I'm going to do that before we get to the interview. Which, the young lady we're going to interview, she dated him. But it wasn't like before these crimes were committed and hey, this happened and let me tell you about this guy. Oh, she knew what he did? She dated him starting back in, I think she said 2018 or 19. She wasn't sure the year. It was mm -hmm. right around Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I'll let her, I'm not going to spoil it by telling the story, but I'm saying this was something she knew what he did. So I don't understand why. Well, that's what we get into in the interview. So once okay. you actually hear the interview, maybe some of those questions. Will be okay. Answered. But she was brutally honest about everything mm -hmm. in the interview. So I'll give her credit for that. But, and like, and like I hate to jump on this, but I've seen text messages from this guy because mm -hmm. she sent them to me. I've seen artwork. He was a very good artist. She's He sent her artist uh, some artwork in the mail. He sent her some greeting cards in the See, mail. See, why can he just have went a whole nother way? And, like and his said, life could have been good. I've seen all this stuff. but All right, so here's the facts that I want, that the, the strange facts that actually pertain to this. All of the victims were African-American, and they were either very slender or morbidly obese, no one in the middle. Well, that's kind of strange. Now, was he 
Was he African-American as well? He was. Okay. He was. Only five of the 11 victims were identified. What? It's also believed that Sowell could be linked to many other missing persons in other areas where he once Aww. lived. So we know about the ones that happened right. 2009 and up, but it's possible. But in December 2011, his residence was demolished by the order of the city leaders. And a memorial to the victims was dedicated in November of 2021. That's really for nice. For uh, the victims. So it sounds like... To me, that maybe his childhood was abusive. And I didn't and look his, into anything about his childhood. His so mom was sure. abusive to him. And, or I don't know. I just, that's so weird that he would just choose African American women and, and obese women. And really skinny women. And, oh, you did. Oh, I didn't yeah, hear you say that. They were really skinny or morbidly obese. And nothing that is in so the crazy. Yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah. He's, he's, Face is yours, so we probably know where he went. Yeah. Okay, well, well I'm excited to hear this interview. Yeah, and, and like I said, and one of the things that she brings up that I find interesting, considering he's the Cleveland Strangler and mm -hmm. most of them were manually strangled, she mentions how big his hands were. Oh, really? Yeah. She said he, sends her, he sent her a picture of him on the phone, uh, or when it was like video conferencing, mm -hmm. but him holding the, the phone. Oh, the phone. She uh -huh. said it was like he was holding a kid's phone in his hand. His hands were so big. Oh, my goodness. So. Wow. But anyway, you're going to hear her her thoughts on it, her thoughts on him, why, how she got involved, why she got involved, and where it led to. Well, so. I just thank God she wasn't one of the victims. So. Yeah, me too. So. All right. Let's listen to Melissa. Hey guys, I promised you that we were going to have uh, an interview to go with this episode of uh, Macabre Misfortunes for the first time. And this is actually how this came about. Now, I talked to this young lady, Melissa, who is uh, uh, somebody that I've I've known for a little while. And she mentioned this to me a couple of years ago. And I kind of let it go, and then she mentioned it again the other day, and then I, as I started looking, I'm like, this is a hell of a lot bigger story than I realized that it was. I should have delved into it a little more, uh, and that actually prompted me to do the story that you guys have already heard. So I worked the story around this interview that I'm doing, which is the first time we've ever done that. So first of all, Melissa, thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. I'm here. Glad to be here. Okay, so... Two years ago, 2020, I was talking to you about some stuff, and you mentioned this, and you sent me some artwork, uh, some pictures of text messages, some uh, greeting card pictures that Anthony had sent to you uh, during the time that you guys were dating, and you said you were dating. What I didn't realize at the time was I thought you meant you had dated this guy before all this took place and, oh, wow, this guy ended up being a serial killer and I didn't know and this is cool. What I didn't realize is you actually started dating him after he was in prison for all of the murders that happened up in Cleveland. Tell me how that came to be. How did you meet him and how did you guys end up uh, developing a relationship? Uh, well, it started off um, at work. 
we had two weeks of training and basically you could get on your phone or do whatever. They didn't really care because it was a government job. So um, I went on my Amazon account and I'm into true crimes. Uh, my dad had actually went to prison for manslaughter before I was born. So it's like nothing new or anything to me. Um, so I'm into true crimes and I had seen the documentary uh, Unseen, which of course is about Anthony. And uh, of course, you know, you watch all this stuff, you hear all this stuff and you're like, what in God's green earth? Well, I was so into some intrigued me about it to where I went on YouTube and saw videos where he went on the stand after the fact and was telling his story, like how he grew up and his background, et cetera. And I had seen videos where he was, you know, given his sentence and, you know, saw him crying, et cetera. And for, for whatever reason, like there's no logical one thing I could just say, just something just not necessarily attracted me to him, but I was just, like fascinated for some reason. Like I wanted to know more. I wanted to know like how, like what would make somebody do stuff like that. And I mean, I was, I don't want to say obsessed. It wasn't anything crazy like that, but I was just like, just amazed and, and just in wonder. So for fun, I had actually been writing my high school sweetheart who was in prison in Kentucky and it's on JPay, which a lot of people know what that is. If you have a loved one in prison, and I said just for you know shits and giggles, I'm gonna see if he's on there. So I looked up Ohio. I looked his name up. There he was. And I'm like, oh, he's probably not gonna write back. I'm, you know, I'm bored. I'm hit a little weed. Why not? So I wrote him, and it was just real generic. Like, oh, I saw you know this documentary, blah blah blah. You know, just like I guess anybody else who has ever wrote him and he didn't write back. So I'm like, well, you know, he probably gets a lot of crazy people. And I was like, forget it, whatever. Well, then about two weeks later, I still hadn't heard anything. And I'm like, I'm going to write a physical letter. I'm going to let him know I'm in business. I want a response. Um, so he finally did write back and it was real generic. And he was just like, I want to, let's do a video chat because I want to see if you are who you say you are. Apparently, a lot of people, I guess, send like hate letters and threats and, you know, obviously for good reason to just be blunt about it. So I literally had to like prove I wasn't like an 80 year old Chinaman somewhere. Like I was a real person. The pictures were me. I was authentic. Um, so that's how it started in the beginning. So. At some point in time, did you actually go up to the prison and, and visit in person? No, I wanted to so bad. And I know people are going to be like, this girl's nuts. But I wanted to because I want to just know if I could do it. Like, it's one thing to talk to somebody over the phone or do your video chat. You know, you can hang up. And that's the end of it. But if somebody's like physically right in front of you, regardless about whatever your feelings are for them on a personal level or an intimate level, it's still in the back of your mind. I mean, you know what they're capable of, you know what they've done. So I was like, I kind of like went back and forth about it for a while. And uh, he had actually sent me a picture of him on a visit uh, with this girl and guy that are in some kind of rock band and they're like obsessed with him. Supposedly the girl was with Marilyn Manson a while back, which supposedly he said it was true. Uh, but anyway, that's here or there. So he could, I could see what it looked like, uh, the surroundings. He said, yeah, it's a physical visit. You're in the same room with people who robbed a bank or, you know, sold drugs. And I'm like, 
I pictured it would be something totally separate, us considering, you know, the rape stuff and the murder and all that. You would think he would be like in an isolated cell or you couldn't touch the person. He said, oh, no, uh, we're shack I'm shackled at my feet, but not at my hands. And then, I don't know, just something about that visual of just imagining someone who had done those things. You're that close where they could just reach over at any time and just snap or, you know, what has he got to lose? He's already on death row. So a big part of me was kind of intimidated and kind of scared to actually physically go. And by the time I finally was like, I'm going to, you know, rent a car, I'm going to hotel, go a few days to make the most out of it. Uh, COVID happened and there were, there were no more visits period. And I was like, just so bummed out because, you know, obviously if anybody knows, like he died you know, a year or so ago. So, I mean, I missed my chance to be able to like actually, you know, see him, see him. So, so if it wasn't for COVID, you would have went. Oh, I definitely would have went. Um, I mean, my daughter was going to go and like stay in the hotel where we're going to get like some four star place where, you know, she could swim. We're getting the jacuzzi or whatever. And I was, you know, just going to go. Uh, I mean, the whole time we talked and, and sent letters and cards and video chatted. I mean, I never spent a penny. He paid for everything. I never sent him a dollar. He never asked me for anything. I mean, it was like, it was pretty awesome because he could tell I wasn't like one of these fan people or someone obsessed with like gore. I wasn't, it wasn't like that whenever we talked. So what would you say? Well, first of all, when did you start talking to him? What year? First time I wrote and I had to go back and look like, when did I work where I worked? I want to say it was Christmas. I want to say 2019, but it could have been 18. You got to forgive me. But it was Christmas for those two years, and we were, you know, together, if you want, however you want to call it, for a year before he just had enough. He said I was crazy, and he, he couldn't handle anymore, and I was like, really? So that tells you, if that tells you anything, I can be a little wild when I drink, I guess. So he, he couldn't handle it. Like, I would yell at him, and I mean, I can vaguely remember saying stuff like, nobody even knows who you are, and you know, you act like you're this big shot because you've done all this stuff and they're writing books about all the other people and making movies about all the other people. And <clears throat> I've never even heard of you until, you know, I happened to see that one uh, interview and, oh, he would get so mad because if you ever like tried to like demean him or make him feel like he wasn't like some kind of king or bow down or like kiss his ass, I guess, or, or adore him. Woo, he let you have it. He let you know how he, how he felt real quick. How did you really feel about him? I mean, did you feel like it was a love or was a, what did you think? No, I think for the first four months, three months, I was more like, again, just intrigued. I just wanted to just know more. I wanted to understand. I didn't make it like a life's mission kind of thing or anything like crazy like that. But, you know, we would, he would come up in discussions with coworkers and some family and they're just like, you're crazy. Why would you ever do that? And you better not tell him your address. And what if he sends people there or what if the wrong people ever find out, you know, somebody could try to hurt you. And I'm like, well, why would they want to hurt me? I didn't do anything. And they were like, just for the simple fact that, you know, you're choosing to have a relationship with this person. So over the course of us like talking and getting more intimate and details about stuff in our lives, et cetera. I mean, there was a love that grew just like any other relationship, but it wasn't like, 
like I was smitten or, you know, anything like that. It, it really just started out as just wanting to know more. And then you do get closer to somebody, you know, with, with time, et cetera. So, I mean, I definitely cared for him. I was really sad when something did happen, when he did die. But at the same time, like, I felt relief for, like, the families of the victims, obviously. Like, I said prayers for them, and I felt bad for them and what happened. But when we talked, I made it clear to him in the beginning, I don't want to talk about your case. I don't want to talk about what happened. This is not why I'm talking to you. So I let him know, like, you know, at first, like, I don't, you're going to have your guard up, but that's not why I'm here. Like, I'm not here for a show or to, like, find out secrets because a lot of people have snuck and tried to do interviews with him and tried to, you know, make money or get exposure off of him. And, uh, oh, he told me about that, too. He gets so pissed off, like, oh, this person made all this money off me. And ha, da, 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 da. I mean, uh, like I said, you made him mad. I mean, he was a whole different person for sure. Let me ask you this. It, let's just say that, well, first of all, before I ask that question, let me ask you this. All the research that I did on Anthony, um, it said that he had died of a terminal illness. It was not disclosed or any information about how long he had this terminal illness. Was this something that you were aware of through your conversations that he had a terminal illness? Oh, definitely. Um, he had, a. I don't remember exactly what was wrong with his heart. I just know I, don't, I had a heart attack myself uh, November 2019 and I was able to relate to him because I'm like, oh, damn, I had a heart attack. So I know his heart was very damaged. He was on a lot of medicine. He was a diabetic. And I mean, I would say 60 percent of our conversations, he'd talk about food. I mean, he ate, 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 ate. And if you ever see the last mugshot compared to, you know, years before, I mean, he blew all the way up. He even said, damn, I've gained 100 pounds in this MF. And that's all he did was play his music, watch movies, eat, and, you know, basically uh, terrorize the other people on death row, which I know it's not funny, but it kind of is. And if you could really picture the scenario of all these like serial killers and rapists all under one area. And uh, I, I mean, it just almost sounds like I just wish there was a documentary just showing like the like the conversations they had like some of the stuff he told me like on one conversation he was like if you think i'm crazy or what I, or whatever was crazy you should look up this one guy in here and he told me his name and of course i forget but i did look it up I, but i heard somebody mumble in the background another man's voice and i'm like what the hell's going on and he said yeah i'm talking about you motherfucker and i just couldn't i couldn't help but laugh i was like you are nuts like i cannot believe you just talked like that and he was like oh they're jealous of me in here they fear me in here they want to be me so bad and i'm just like that is like that's crazy to me and it would i mean it would just blew my mind the random stuff he would shoot off i'm just like where the hell does this come from do you feel like that you, you obviously had a lot of conversations phone and and uh text and, and what have you do you feel like that he was mentally unstable? Did you feel like he was to use the term crazy or do you feel like he was fairly normal, but had some really bad tendencies? What was your take? And I mean, I almost want to say both because I mean, he even referred to himself as crazy multiple times. And one time he referred to me, he was like, you're crazy. And I'm like, really coming from you? Are you fucking 
are you fucking kidding me? And then he's like, yeah, you're right. And he started laughing. But I mean, some of the stuff he would come off with, it was almost like, damn, am I talking to like a kid? Like a bully kid is almost what it sounded like. He was, he'd almost make, make you feel sorry for him at some points. And you would, I would. And I'm just like, oh my God, how do I feel sorry for someone who did all this crazy shit? But he would make you almost feel like he was a real person. Uh, but then he, he could flip the script and get really jealous, really angry. And then go right back to just being real sweet. And I'm like, this motherfucker's bipolar. Or there's something really, something's wrong upstairs. And um, I mean, I've seen a bunch of different sides to him. And I think one of the things he would get mad about, like I would say, oh, I saw this on Google. Oh, I heard this. And then, or did you know this happened? And he would say, stop Googling me. And I don't want you to read that. And it's, it's not true. It's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. He never took ownership for anything. He never admitted anything. He never went into details about crimes. Because, again, I reassured him that's not why I was there. So it never got brought up. But um, I do have a couple random wild stories that stuff that never made the news. That One story definitely should have made the news, and it never did, about something that happened while he was on death row that might be a little fascinating to you. Can you share it? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember exactly the date, but it was within that year we were you know, talking and whatnot. He said that some new company or some company, whatever was contracted through the prison to redo all the windows in the death row cells. And I guess they'd been up for like, you know, 30, 40 years or older and crap or security, whatever. They had to redo all the windows. Well, he told me, he said, he called one day. He was like, babe, you're not going to believe this. And I'm like, no, you know, try me. He said, one of these crazy motherfuckers in here almost got out. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, one of one of the, the killers on death row at that prison he was at got the window loose or he not he broke it. He got the window out somehow and he was damn near out the window when they busted. Like, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, why wouldn't that be on the news? Like, I know he didn't get out and I know it looks bad on the prison, but I'm like, if he wouldn't have told me that, I would have never in a million years even just thought like, what if one of these people actually did get out? Because you think they're so secure. They're under all this lock and key. And he was like, Oh no, it's, it's once he got out that window, if he would have got through the one fence, he would have been out. And I mean, that gave me cold chills and he hmm. actually laughed at me. He laughed about it. He thought it was hilarious. He said, I wish he would have got out. And I'm like, Oh my God, why? So let me ask you this. We'll end on this. You said that he kind of broke it off with you, so to speak. Did but but when you were going to try to see him in COVID, that was after the fact, correct? Right, because we you know we had spoke again. I had uh, I don't know reached out after I had talked to him for a while, and I was in my head. I'm like, God, you know, for this to really be over, over, like I just really want to meet him. I really just want to see him face to face, and just. And I know it sounds so creepy and weird, but I'm like, like I, I wanted to like touch his hand because it, you, I don't know if I've sent you the picture or the video, but in those video jail calls or whatever, you can see his hand grip that phone. And it's just like the hugest, yeah, uh, like animal or something. It didn't look like a human hand. It looked like the hand of like Andre the Giant or something. 
or like like somebody holding a little toddler phone. And I, I mean, just something about just even seeing that visual and I could like picture the stuff that he did. It just blows my mind. Like, I don't know. I just really didn't want to go. And um, because of COVID, I couldn't. But up until he died, I was still one of the only people on his visiting list. Other than that couple I told you about and like a sister or two, there was not many people because you're only allowed so many people on your list. And he had he had to actually bump a family member off to put me on there. So, I mean, it had gotten serious until, you know, one of our many crazy arguments. You know, he get mad. You, he get mad and then right back and it'd be like nothing ever happened. How did you find out about his actual death and how did it make you feel? Well, of course, we hadn't spoken in a little while. I don't want to say long, long. The last time we wrote was his birthday, actually. And he thanked me and um. He knew I was a new grandma, and he called me grandma, my last name, and I thought it was funny. But he wrote me back on his birthday last time we had interaction. A good friend of mine, uh, when I worked in the stock market, she's in Boston. She had been sent me a message, and she's like, isn't this your, your guy or whatever? And it was a link where he had died, and apparently I hadn't been up long or uh, seen the news. But once I did see it, I was like, damn, it was on like CNN, it was MSNBC, I mean, Fox News, it was freaking everywhere. And I mean, I, obviously I wasn't shocked because I knew he didn't have the, the greatest health and he, he ate horribly and he did have all his health concern, health issues and it was almost like he just didn't really give a shit. Half the time he wouldn't take his medicine, I had to yell at him like, man, you have you check your sugar? Maybe you shouldn't be eating all that shit, I get on him. But anyway, in the end, uh, I mean, of course I was sad I was like damn you know because I knew I would never like you know get to talk to him or at least say hey again but at the same time like I felt major relief for obviously for the, the victims and their families because I'm sure that's like the only piece you know they ever finally got was when he finally was dead so I mean it's like a you feel sad but relief I, I guess you can say last question there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this and say, what the hell is wrong with this girl to where she's reaching out to somebody that's done all these horrible things that's ruined so many people's lives. And she may takes it upon herself to even start any type of relationship, let alone a somewhat romantic relationship. What do you say to people that just completely don't understand why you would do this? Uh, same with my poor aunt. Uh, she was going through dementia. I hate to say thank God because, you know, she probably forgot everything I told her. But she asked me the same thing. She's like, what in the hell are you doing? And I actually had her watch Unseen with me. And then at the end, she was like, you better stop talking to him right now for something happens to you. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not even worried about that. That's not even crossed my mind. I mean, I don't know. FBI profilers have wanted to talk to me and asked me basically the same kind of stuff. And I refuse to talk to them. Because I don't want to make things any weirder or worse. Uh, but I mean, there's just no logic. It's like I didn't, when I talked to him or messaged him or reached out, whatever, I wasn't thinking about what had happened or what he had done. That I knew it happened, obviously. I mean, I'm not slow. It was always in the back of my mind, you know, of course, to be careful with certain details of my own life, et cetera. 
Uh, but I mean, I just, I didn't see him in that way for what he did. I saw him as a, a human, as a person, even though someone could say, well, a human, a person couldn't do those kind of things. I mean, maybe not, but I mean, like we're all wired a certain way. You can't say that something is impossible or, oh, I would never do that because sure as shit fire, that day is going to come up as soon as you say that and you will or may do it. And again, I've, what I've always learned is, you know, you love the sinner, hate the sin. And I mean, my dad, he was a murderer. That didn't stop me from loving him. You know, he actually went to Eddieville prison for it. He got out the year before I was born and I was the first thing he did. I mean, my whole family's went to prison for, you know, different crimes and I've had exes in prison. So it's like, as hard as it may be, you almost got to try to overlook all that other all that other stuff and just focus on being there for the person. Do you think because prison has been a more normal situation throughout your life from your dad to exes to, you know, like you said, a lot of people in your family, do you think that makes it a little easier for somebody like you to oversee the uh, situations in somebody's life? Yeah, definitely. So, because I know people are always going to be judgmental. I mean, Bad news spreads faster than good news. Negativity spreads faster than positivity. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. And it, it stinks, but, I mean, that's just life, and that's how it is. But uh, yeah, that's a good question. I really do think that it, it has made the scenario more normal and more comfortable. I mean, I got married at a jail, and, I mean, thankfully divorced. That was a stupid mistake in my life. Um, in fact, where 60 days in was, I mean, hell, that's where I got married, the original one. So I definitely, I'm comfortable as far as like, I I could go get searched and I, you know, to go to a visit and it I wouldn't bother me a bit. You know, some people get all offended and nervous. And to me, it's just like another day, you know, going to Walmart or somewhere else. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story with us, Melissa. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right, babe. I'll talk to you soon. So Tracy, I hope that answered some of the questions. I mean, obviously she said that wasn't her intentions was for it to be anything romantic. She just wanted to, uh, obviously she was curious about him. Right. She was into true crime, saw the documentary. Obviously she wrote him. Um, and then he eventually wrote back one thing led to another. I mean, obviously it didn't turn into a, um, in-person relationship because she never got to see him in person. She had planned, but COVID hit, obviously. And yeah. She didn't go. And then, now he's passed away, so that never happened. But, so, I mean, Melissa, obviously, has had a tough life herself. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm sure, like I asked you, you heard me ask her, you know, do you think because you've had several family members that, that have been in prison and your father was in prison boyfriends that this is more normal for you than where some people would look and say why would you mm -hmm. date somebody but i mean she's able to look over a lot of the stuff right. because she's had so many members of her family in mm -hmm. prison that it is more normal that's bless her heart it would be for some families. yeah i i might have missed it did she take did she say how she took the death of him or yeah yeah i mean she she said that obviously she was hurt but they weren't as close during that time they mm -hmm. had had their falling out and hadn't talked for a whole lot. And they were mm -hmm. just kind of starting to, you know, try to 
make amends. Uh, but yeah, obviously she said she she hates that that she she knows that it brought probably some kind of closure to the victim's family right, for right. his death, but she was bothered the fact that mm-hmm. she never got to meet him in person. Okay, gotcha. But even uh, something even stranger now, mm. you and I were listening, and at the very end of this recording is a sound or something that I have no clue what it is. Yeah. It, but it is, caught both of us off guard. Oh, uh, yeah. And it kind of creeped. Give me the creeps. Yeah. So... I said at the end of the interview, you could hear, I said bye. And then uh, she said bye, and then I said bye, and I'll talk to you later. And then I hit stop recording. But there's something at the very end where I stopped recording that I don't really know what it is. So I'll play it for you guys, and we'll go from there. But check this out. So in case you didn't really hear it, I'm going to play it like three times in a row so you can hear what it is. And I have no clue what it was. Anyways, that wraps up this edition of Macabre Misfortune. It's definitely been a unique one. I'm going to go hide under my bed now. (laughs) All right, guys. We love you. We'll talk to you later. Bye.